As Mark mentioned, my name is Ryan, and yeah, I'm just honored to be with you all this morning and share in God's word with you. Um, I'm humbled and honored as well to be considered for eldership. Um, I don't take this role lightly, um, as I see Brad and Mark um, handle that role with all respect and um, dignity, and so I'm, I'm definitely honored to, to be considered for that. And please, as Mark mentioned, please be praying for our families as as we walk in that direction. Um, This morning, we're going to be at the end of of Matthew chapter 13 and the beginning of Matthew chapter 14. And if you're new with us this morning, we're thankful that you're here. Um, If you've been with us for a while, you know that we're walking through a series called The King in the Kingdom, which is a survey over the book of Matthew. Um, and this morning we're going to, we're going to dig into that idea a bit more. Um, we're going to understand who we are as kingdom citizens under the lordship of, of Jesus. Um, specifically looking at what it means as kingdom citizens to be faithful followers of, of Christ. And when I, when I say faithful or being, or faithfulness, what I mean is that there's a, almost a dependence on and this faithfulness is fueled by a love for Christ and an anticipated hope for our eternal reward that's in heaven. So a faithfulness that's fueled and dependent upon a love for Christ and a hope in what's to come, our, our reward in heaven. Um, wh- one person that comes to mind as I think about faithfulness um, is a man named John Muir. Um, John Muir was a naturalist and he is known as the father of national parks. Um, my wife and I are very thankful for John Muir as um, my wife's on my, her bucket list is to visit every national park. We love visiting national parks and um, we can thank John Muir for many of them. He, um, he loved nature and he had a hope to see specific areas of North America preserved off for people to enjoy and study, study nature. I mean, that's why we have national parks today. So it was because of John Muir's faithfulness which included his love for nature and his hope to see these areas preserved that led to us having these national parks. And if John Muir could see the number of parks we have today compared to when there were parks during his day, he would be blown away. Um, but for us, and what we see here in the in this picture of, of Matthew's gospel is that um, that we love, that our faithfulness is fueled by our love for the king and our hope that is in the our eternity in heaven, our eternal reward in heaven. But this morning is, is an interesting and pretty dark text. Um, it's a text that, that most of you, most of us would not just dump into, just dive into with all joy and excitement. There is beheadings and there is rejection and, um, it's not one that you would bring to Sunday school class. Um, but I pray that this morning that through, that through the reading of the word that we would see what true faithfulness looks like, that we would see both Jesus and John being faithful towards what they love and, and knowing the end um, of time is their, is their reward. So we'll jump right in. So Matthew 13, verse, starting in verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. In coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished. And they and said, where did this man 
so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? And is his mother not, is, is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many works there, many mighty works there, because of their unbelief. So here we have Jesus entering into his hometown for seems like the first time in a long time. He grew up in Nazareth. Um, the prophets told us that, that the, the Messiah, the Son of God, would come as a Nazarene, that he would be born in Nazareth, that he would grow up in Nazareth. Um, but Jesus comes into town one day and begins to speak with all authority from heaven as he is the Son of God. And at first, the people, the, the Nazarenes in town are astonished. They're blown away and amazed by all that Jesus is, is speaking to them. But they, they realize very quickly that he was one of them, that he, was, that he grew up, he played with their kids, he went to their schools, and they, their astonishment and amazement then turns to jealousy, turns to pride, and turns to unbelief. Um, and because of their unbelief, that's what keeps them from experiencing the grace and mercy and mighty works um, of Christ. And while that does not sound good at all, especially for the, the Nazarenes, um, there, there, is, there is hope in this. Because it's, it's through Jesus' rejection in Nazareth and through Jesus' rejection throughout his whole life that he's able to bring about the, the fullness of his salvation for his people. And we see that because in like, the prophets, like the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah is telling us that this, that this king that this God man will come and he will be rejected and he will be cursed and he will be the man from whom men hide their faces that um, no one can even look at him because he's nothing spe- he shouldn't be anything special to the eye and that he will be rejected. But w- what the prophets are getting at is that, that Jesus didn't come just straight down from heaven to the cross. That there was God, God planned in such a way for Jesus to come to this earth as a baby and suffer and be rejected his whole life and up to the point of his death on the cross. And if, if Jesus didn't suffer and be rejected so thoroughly, the, our salvation would have never been completed. The plan of God would, would be incomplete and it would be undone. So Jesus's faithfulness to God's plan led him to being rejected for the sake of, of our salvation, for the sake of, of his sheep out in, out in the world, that, that in order for him to save, save all those who he had chosen, he must be so thoroughly rejected. And similarly to this, um, John the Baptist, who we'll get into in a little bit later, he was also rejected. Um, we know that John was the last prophet we also know that he was the forerunner of Jesus and that he prepared the way for Jesus's ministry and his message. But John also prepared the way for Jesus's rejection. See, John was, was rejected first before Jesus. And, and you kind of see this pattern through John's life. Like John must do this in order for Jesus 
to as the preparer of the way that these things must happen. So um, before we jump into Matthew 14, we're just going to do a quick recap of John's life through the, the book of Matthew. Um, so in Matthew 3, we see John coming out of the wilderness, um, he eating honey, wearing camel's hair, and um, kind of this weird guy that people don't really know how to take. Um, but he's being faithful to the call of God to come and preach repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, he knows that, that Jesus is coming on the scene soon. So he's telling the people, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. Prepare your hearts. Ready yourself for the king is coming. When Jesus comes, John baptizes Jesus and proclaims to the world that behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus' ministry at this point is starting to begin, and John's ministry is coming to a pretty abrupt close. Um, what we see is that in um, after Jesus' baptism, in, John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 30, John says, He, Christ, must increase, and I must decrease. John, John's foretelling this idea that, that Christ's ministry, Christ's message is about to effectively begin and John's ministry will, will be indefinitely over. And quick, quickly after he speaks these words, he is arrested by um, King Herod at the time. Um, and we'll find out why he is arrested later. But while John is in prison, in between... John's not mentioned between Matthew 3 and Matthew 11. So the next time we hear about John in in the Gospel of Matthew is in Matthew 11, where we see that John is in prison. John's been in prison for quite a few months now, and he's beginning to feel lonely, and he's beginning to feel doubt and darkness. And the the enemy is beginning to speak lies into him, making him believe that things that are, are not true. And so he, his disciples come and visit John, John's disciples come and visit him. And John says to them, Hey, when you leave, we want you to go to Jesus. And we want you to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another in prison? John has been faithful his whole life to being obedient to what God has called him to. And in this moment where he is alone, fearing his life, not sure what's going to happen, if he's ever going to get out of prison, John begins to, to doubt. And, and he needs, he's asking his disciples to go and get some kind of refreshment, some kind of remembrance of who Christ is. And so his disciples go off and go to Jesus and tell Jesus what John asked. And Jesus immediately quotes back to John's disciples the promises from Isaiah about who this Messiah would be, who the Christ was and the things that he would do when he was here on this earth. But not only does Jesus give him this, this lip service, but he's actually doing these things in front of the disciples so that they can report back to John what Jesus is actually doing and who he is. So Jesus is giving sight to the blind and he's recovering hearing to those who are deaf and raising the dead. He's cleansing those who are sick and healing those who have leprosy. And so this had to have been very good for John to hear just this remembrance of God's word to continue to just be fuel to John, to keep him going and keep him encouraged. But 
as well as as well as not only affirming that these that the word is true for John, he also Jesus continued in front of John's disciples to affirm John to the crowds and began to praise John, saying, "This is the greatest man who's ever been born of a woman," because of his because of John's faithfulness and obedience and love for Christ. Now, it was a common thought at the time, and you can kind of see it here in John's question that he is asking Jesus, but you also see it in the disciples that. Um, that when Jesus was coming, they were expecting Jesus to come and smite every person who was not for him. They were, they were expecting Jesus to come with guns blazing, ready to take down all the, all the high powers in place. Everyone who was against Jesus in, in, in his world. And those who were Jesus's friends, they would be right at his right and his left, ready to take, take over the kingdom of Israel. But as we know, that's not, that was not Jesus' plan. Jesus came as a humble servant. He had to be rejected. He had to be sacrificed. He had to be crucified. He had to die, be buried, and resurrect in order that we may be saved. And so with the disciples and with John, they're, they're thinking about Jesus' coming as only coming once. But we know that Jesus, Jesus will come back again to bless those who, who are repentant. And to judge those who are not. So now, sitting in this room, we know that Christ came once to cleanse us of our sins, to remove the sin and guilt from our own lives, that, that Christ could make us innocent and, and clean before God, and that we, our, our hope is in the fact that Jesus is returning again, and will make all things new for us, and will bring judgment for those who, um, who have not repented. And that, that is our future hope. Like that's what we long for. We long for Christ's return. We long for that eternal kingdom. Meanwhile, um, John is still in prison and the fame of Jesus begins to spread. The fame of his works and his message begin to spread and they reach the ears of the King at the time, which we'll see in Matthew chapter 14 here. So starting in verse one, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist, and he has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And Herod, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So the fame of Jesus begins to spread. And as as it spreads, as Herod hears of the fame of Jesus, hears of his message and his ministry, it sounds very similar to another man that he knew who was John the Baptist, who Herod had previously arrested, put in prison, and then beheaded. And so the, the majority of, of this section here between verses um, 3 and 12 are a flashback to when John was arrested and his death. And Matthew puts this in here specifically to show us how, how and why John, John died. And I think, I think it'll, it'll bring a lot of, a lot of truth out of, out of this. So I'm, I'm really thankful that, that Matthew decided to put this in here um, for this morning's 
not specifically for this morning's passage, but for, for everyone's, everyone's joy in, in, in their life. So, um, yeah, so the, the fame of, of Jesus continued to spread. Herod hears about it, and he's like, oh no, John's back, and he's been raised from the dead, and he's coming back to haunt my life because he was here once and he told me that I need to stop being in this adulterous relationship with this woman Herodias. Um, and so John is, Herod's thinking that John's back to, to make his life even worse now, but we know that that's not true. Um, but it's because of John's love for Christ and because of, of John's righteous rebuke that he gives to Herod, that Herod is haunted by this idea of, of standing before any kind of righteousness. Herod wants to live his own life and do whatever he wants to do. He doesn't want to have to answer to anyone. And so he's terrified by this person coming on the scene. And we know that from both John and Jesus' ministry, that both of them make the authorities very nervous and very uncomfortable. They, they make the authorities feel like, okay, these two men, they need to be silenced because they're, they're, they're ruining my kingdom and tearing down everything that I've built, and, and we can't have any of that in this, in this kingdom. I think we need to look at who this earthly king is, who Herod is, and what his life um, looked like, and how really demonic it, it was. Um, so this Herod at the time, Herod the Tetrarch, Tetrarch means he's a king over a fourth of the kingdom of Israel. His name is Herod Antipas. His father was Herod the Great. If you remember Herod the Great from when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, um, the law went, went out to said every, every male baby must be killed because I heard that there's a king that's been born and there will be no other king in my kingdom besides me. And so Herod the Great had two sons, Herod Antipas and Herod Philip. Um, and one day Herod Antipas went to visit Herod Philip and Herod Philip was married to a woman named Herodias. Well, Herod Antipas thought Herodias was more attractive than his current wife. So he ran away with Herodias and they got married. Um, Herodias has um, a daughter who we will meet later on in this story. But this family uh, is an absolute train wreck. Um, This family is like Jerry Springer level type disaster of a family. And... It was because of the spirit of God that was in John's life that led him to call out Herod for his sins. It was this, this love that, that only Christ can, can produce in someone's heart to love someone as evil as Herod and say I, like how John would feel that he can't even imagine Herod facing the day where he would stand before a holy and righteous God. He would be completely guilty before him. So John made it his ambition to go and to, to preach the gospel before Herod and ask him to repent of his sins and turn back to God. Like, can you imagine fearing man so little that you would be willing to, to literally stick your neck out there and be so bold with your faith that your love for Christ is just overflowing in you that you would go and, and call out all kinds of ridiculous sins in, in our country today. Like I can't, I can't imagine with this, um, just how, how sensitive this, this culture is and how, how this would be taken. Like John was, 
I don't think it was any better for John in this day as we see later in the story. But can you imagine fearing man so little and, and loving God so much? It was like last week when Pastor Mark was, was teaching on the parable of the treasure that is hidden in the field. Um, and we see that this man goes and sells everything that he has in order to buy this field, to have this treasure. And he does it with all joy. I believe that John is the visual example of the manifestation of this, of this parable. I think that John gave everything up. He counted the cost of Christ, got rid of everything in his life, any, any hindrance, any distraction, and he set his face straight towards Christ, who was empowering him and giving him all boldness and love for, um, for those who, who Christ had, had to, for John to minister to. So, yeah, as we move on through this text, we get to verse 6, um, and we'll, this, will, this passage will close us out for the day. But, um, but when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was very sorry, but because of his, of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. This is a, it's a very... It's a very heavy passage. Just the, the, the grossness of, of sin is, I mean, it's really ridiculous to see the depths of depravity in this, in this family and what it led to, that this man of God would, would be beheaded. Um, yeah, so Herod throws a birthday party for himself, um, and Herodias um, is there at the party, the... The wine is flowing. Everyone's having a good time. Herod is so happy that he asks his middle school aged daughter to go out and dance for his friends. Um, and this brings Herod so much joy. It pleases Herod so much that he asks the girl what she would want if she could have anything. And because of the, the evilness of, of her mom, her, the mom asks for the head of John the Baptist. And because of Herod's oaths and because of his guests, because he cares more about what people think of him as a king than he does about the life of another person. That, that it's better for John to lose his head than it is for Herod to lose his reputation before, before man. And just imagine like what, what John is thinking during this time. Like when the, when the jail guard comes down and he has his sword and John knows what's going to happen. John's like, like the prison guard is, is, is saying, hey, this, this woman, Herodias, she wants your head. She wants you to be beheaded. She hates you. And they're having a good time up there. So if, if this doesn't happen, it's going to ruin Herod's party and that won't be good for anyone. So we just, sorry, man, your, uh, your days are over. Like, what do you think John was thinking at this time? Like, God, Really? 
Like, are you kidding me? Like, this is, this is what you have for me. Like, I've spent one year in ministry. You've called me my whole life. I lived in the wilderness. I sacrificed everything for you. And now you have me die like this. You have me come into, the, come into prison. I've been here for a while. And then you tell me that I'm going to get my head cut off by this sadistic woman. And this, this is what you have for me. Like, I, I saw it going way differently. I saw me and Jesus partnering together, doing ministry. And if I was going to die on a cross next to Jesus, I would have taken that. But this, this is humiliating. I wanted a heroic death. But because of John's faithfulness, I don't believe that John responded like this at all. I think that, that I know because we look at the life of John, we see that John's treasure was Christ and that John was going to put on the image of his, of his savior and he was going to humble himself keep his mouth silent and know that his reward is in heaven, that he was not going to make a big fuss about how he was dying. He didn't care how he was dying because he didn't care how he was living. All he cared about was, was Christ's glory here on earth and his eternal reward because Christ was his reward. And even though John was dead, even though John was beheaded, God was not done with John. He was not done with John's testimony. And that's the reason that we sit here today is obviously because the gospel. But we sit here today in this passage celebrating John's life, celebrating John's death, and celebrating John's love for Christ. And we celebrate John's faithfulness today because he loved Christ so much and he had his eyes fixed on the eternal kingdom that is to come, not in this world. And brothers and sisters around the globe, for generations to generations, have given their lives for the sake of the gospel, that it would enrich the testimony of the gospel. If you think about, if you think about Acts 7 and 8, where Stephen is stoned, and, and Saul at the time comes and ravages the church, dragging men and women outside, and persecution was rampant. The gospel spread like wildfire during that time. Like there was no stopping it because people would go into, they would, these Christians would go into these towns, they would share the gospel and people would wonder, how on earth are you, are you giving your lives for this? And it was because of their faithfulness. Because when your faith costs you something, it's going to speak much louder than when it costs you nothing at all. And we know that many others in this day, and in ages past that, that they've given their lives for, the, for they've counted the cost and they know that re, their reward is invaluable. But we know that, that John is, that John is not dead, that his body they took and they buried, but John is, has never in this story, in this passage, John has never felt more alive. Um, there's a quote by Charles Spurgeon that I feel like summarizes this passage really well. It says, it was, it was well for the Baptist to go to his reward, for his work was done. He was not left to pine in solitude. The man of God left his prison for paradise by one sudden stroke of the sword. It was a foul murder, but to the Baptist, it was a happy release. See, John's love for Christ was unfathomable. 
And John was convinced of the eternal hope that, that, we, that we all have in Christ. And so John died faithfully. Church, as we, as we close, if this word is true, if the work of, of Christ in John's life, if the rejection that Jesus faced in Nazareth and throughout the rest of his life, if all of that is true, how does this change how we go from here today? How does, like, how does this change our, our lunch conversations? How does this change when we go into the office this next week? How does this change how we live going forward from here? I think one thing to note that we can all do, no one's not asking you to go and find someone to, to cut your head off or anything like that. Um, but one thing that we can all do is we can create rhythms in our life that, that allow us to daily abide in Christ. And I believe that's through being saturated in his word. We know that the words that Jesus gave to John when John was in prison, it was the word of God. It was a refreshment to John's soul to hear, to hear the words of Isaiah preached back to him. When Jesus was on the cross, he remembered the prophecies that were told of him and he, he spoke them because the word was alive in, in both of them. And so church, we will not be prepared for suffering if we do not have the word of God sown into our hearts. And because we live in a broken world where there is suffering, we will all suffer. We'll all suffer in some way, whether it's today, next month, or whenever, but we will all face suffering. And we know that, that, this, that this word is, is alive in us. And if we aren't, if we aren't prepared for suffering when it comes, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get the best of us. So we need to establish daily rhythms where we're reading the word, memorizing the word, praying the word, singing the word, whatever it may be, to get your, your mind and your heart into the word of God, because that will ultimately sustain you. Now, I know many of us, and by us, I mean me as well, moved to an area like Parker because it provides everything I could, could ever want for my family. It gives us safety and, and we can be healthy and comfortable. You can have a prosperous life here. If we come to Parker to, to seek our best life here and now for our kids, for our family. But what if Jesus's message, and, and, and that's not, that's not bad. Like when we look at the mountains, we can glorify God. When we see our neighbors, when we're interacting with one another, when we eat good food, we can glorify God in that. But what if Jesus's message for our best life is not here and now, but later and forever? <clears throat> What if the life here in this world, the 70, 80, 90 years that we have here on this earth, what if it was only, only the beginning of time for us? Like, what if we set our gaze upon eternity and not on this, this really small amount of time we have here on this earth? If we considered the eternal pleasures in Christ that we have forever and ever and ever in the kingdom of God I think that would really change our perspective on how we live here. I don't think it's as much a call of Jesus' call to a sacrifice. We're not calling, Jesus isn't calling you to go and lose your head. 
as much as it is a call to be satisfied in Christ. So it's not as much a call to sacrifice as it is a much, as much a call to satisfaction in him, that our joy would be in Christ. And so, church, I, I ask, may we, may we fix our eyes upon the treasure of Christ today and, and run faithfully towards that end, because he is, is the one, as, as kingdom citizens, he's the one that, that our love should be for, and he's already created this, this heavenly kingdom that is our ultimate reward. Um, so to that end, let me, let me pray for us. <clears throat> oh, Father, we um, are humbled by texts like this, um, as dark and um, gruesome as it is, Lord. I, I pray that, that we would meditate upon it, that we would meditate upon not just John's life, but the grossness of our sin and the, the beauty and grace that we see in, in Christ's death and resurrection for us, God. That, that we have been made new, that we have been given a promise that this is not um, our, our home, Lord, but that, that, you have, that you have a home for us in eternity, Lord. And may that be our reward. May, may that be what we are chasing after in this world. Lord, I thank you for Jesus and the grace and mercy he offers us in the gospel. May we remember it this week and meditate on it. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.